0: Uh, Today, we are in part two. This sermon pairs with the sermon from last Sunday, part one of Faith is a Feast. So if you missed that sermon, you want to go back and listen to it from August the 14th. Faith is a Feast, central verse there being, uh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Uh, Psalm 34, verse 8. Today... We're moving on, and we are, as I introduced to open this service, going to focus on one of the more important passages, verses of Scripture in all the New Testament. Because it has to do with how we are supposed to live in faith on this side of our being born anew in the Holy Spirit, being baptized, how we live together as the church, and how we are to be equipped as disciples. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 faith is a feast part two in today's sermon is word and table union word and table union word and table union on this side of our savior's death and resurrection and calling us into faith now let me ask you a question do you think that most americans hold to a functional biblical worldview? Do you think that most Americans hold to a functional biblical worldview? What do you think? Yes? No. All right, so we can actually get somewhat scientific on this. George Barna, who is a premier evangelical, that means he's actually a biblical Christian, you know, researcher, biblically oriented Christian researcher, evangelical, George Barna, who's kind of the guru of evangelical Christian uh, statisticians, researchers. His Barna meta research group in the year 2020, okay, two years ago, 2020, two years ago, did a survey of millennials, U.S. American Millennials. Now, who are millennials? Those would be folks who were born from 1981 to around 1994. A Couple years ago, that means, you know, second half of the 20s, 26, 27 years old, all the way through 39. Millennials are now, you know, late 20s through 41. So in 2022, so kind of that age range, okay? Uh, Barney did a survey in a couple of years ago of US millennials and 61% of millennials, this may surprise you, in the United States still identify themselves as Christian. 61%, okay? Um, But what Barna found out through asking a series of diagnostic questions on what he refers to as a functional biblical worldview that means, like, do you believe that people are basically good? or that people are sinners in need of God's salvation? Do you believe that the Bible is an inspiring and interesting book uh, with lots of spiritual thoughts in it? Or do you believe that's actually authoritative Word of God? Do you believe that Jesus actually bodily rose from the dead? Do you believe that the Bible standards for sexuality and marriage apply? Those kind of questions. Do you believe in reincarnation? That's one of the things he asks. You know, this is not a biblical worldview. Um, so although 61% of American millennials say they're a Christian, what he found out is when he did this test, 2% of American millennials actually hold to a functional biblical worldview. 2% of Americans from what would now be late 20s through about the age of 40, 41. You could say, well, Pastor Martin, you and Barna have kind of rigged this. We know we may have some trouble with the late 20s and 30 and somethings, but let's get let's get everybody in the game. Let's bring in our middle-aged folks, our retired folks, and surely you're really gonna swing the statistics around, aren't you? Well, in the last year in 2021, Barna MRG did a survey of all American adults, an extensive You know, expansive segment of the population. Um, And what they found is this. Of all American adults, around 65%, almost not quite two-thirds of U.S. adults identify themselves still as Christian. Okay, That's almost two-thirds, right? Could we just clap and kind of get this over with then? It's, It's obviously we're a really deeply Christian country, are we not? Well, then what they found out is 51% of all U.S. adults tend to say, claim that they have a biblical worldview. 51% say, I, I, it's not just I'm a Christian, I actually hold to biblical values. 51% say that. But when, again, when Barnes folks asked the diagnostic questions, they got about eight or 10 questions that they asked, it ended up that only 6% We're not in double digits here. 6% of American adults actually hold to a functional, in other words, applied in their life from the Bible to the way they think things out, choose, 6% hold to a functional biblical worldview. What we're dealing with is the fact that an increasing majority in America... Even of those who would call themselves Christian, actually hold to what I would refer to as kind of a first worldy, postmodern, secular worldview. Secular worldview. What is a secular worldview? I'm going to come back to this a little bit more, unpack it a little bit with some help from. An author named Natasha Crane in a few minutes. But just to, to lead off with, a secular worldview highlights the self as your authority. You are your own authority. Okay? It's all about me and mine. And each person gets to be their own little island of governance and determining you know what's right and wrong, and those types of things. So this is the secular worldview, and based on this, the way we talk. And let me be very clear: what 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 Barna is finding, what everybody else is finding, is there that the majority of people who call themselves Christian actually follow a secular worldview and even bring it into their churches. In some cases, many cases maybe even bring it into the pulpit and the the Sunday school teaching and everything else, a secular worldview. So with this secular worldview, the way we start talking is my truth and your truth. It's my truth, your truth. When somebody comes out as this or that, or for this or that, they are affirmed for professing their own truth, okay? It's my truth, your truth, but the, the, here's the one thing that is definitely a no-no in a secular worldview, and we must reject this at all costs. The idea of absolute truth, like, that universally applies to everyone, and what I refer to as extra no's. In other words, it comes from outside of me and outside of us. You know, For a Christian, that means comes from God, right? No, 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 there, there is no truth. It's just everybody's in their own little kind of pilgrimage searching out their own truth. And, in fact, if you talk in terms of this is true for everybody, the response is that this is horrible. This is a horrible sin because what you're doing is you're imposing power on us and we must reject the hierarchy. We must reject the patriarchy and we must, uh, you know, overcome the oppressors. That's kind of the logic of this uh, secular worldview. We're going to be talking about this just like we did this summer, in the middle of the summer, we looked at a biblical update and a constitutional update on some key issues like abortion, sanctity of life, religious expression, free speech. You'll remember that we did those here in the sanctuary in July. And we resourced you also not only on what's going on constitutionally and biblically with those key issues, but how to talk to your neighbors. You remember the resourcing that we gave you on those. So now. Beginning this Wednesday, we're gonna further our biblically-based guidelines for how you and I can be Christian in in a, a community, a nation, and a world that's dominated by secular worldview and how we can, as we put it for part one, just to kind of introduce it this Wednesday night, how do I love my neighbor without compromising my belief? How do I love my neighbor without compromising my belief? Or as one of the members of our Christian education committee put it, you know, how can I uh, follow Jesus without being a jerk about it? So, but how can I love my neighbor without compromising my belief? As the scripture puts it, um, how can we speak the truth in love? Now, that's an interesting dynamic, isn't it? That's Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. The passage goes like this. Paul says that um, he's talking about growing up into maturity as, as the church, as Christians. That we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, speak the truth, but in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head that is Jesus Christ. Or how can we be, put this another way, you remember how Jesus declares us? I mean, this is true. We are the salt of the earth. You remember Jesus says, if you lose your saltiness, you're basically garbage, okay? You're not not serving your purpose. So how can we be the salt of the earth in this secularism dominated 21st century America? or to put that into application, you notice this faith is a feast thing going on here, right? Faith is a feast. Uh, Colossians 4, 6. This is God's word through the apostle Paul applying this to our public speech. Paul says, let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, seasoned with salt. And and what's he talking about here? Well, the, the second part of this verse says, so that you may know how you should answer every person. You know, different answers. The, the truth is still the same, but the, the level of conversation you get engaged in with different people is going to apply. Who are they? Where are they at spiritually? Otherwise, okay. Conversation is different in the church and outside the church with believers and non-believers, for instance, uh, so that you may know how to answer each person. Colossians 4, 6. Now, I have good news for you. Jesus does not save you, fill you with his spirit, and then say, go at it, boy. Go at it, gal. Be a lone ranger. You've got this all figured out. Just do this on your own. I'm sure you're going to do great. And if you don't, by the way, you're in trouble. That is not the way it works. Jesus calls disciples, that's Christians, together to learn on a regular, continual basis. And he does that centering around the word and table union. Now, when you look at Jesus's ministry, you find out that Jesus um, spent two and in the direction of three years with his disciples in constant contact with them. I mean, they're constantly together, living life together. That's the way we talk now, right? Jesus did this with his disciples and had, you know, impromptu discussions with them. the peripatetic teaching along the way and around tables. Now, you may say to me, that's fine for them, Pastor Martin, because like the Apostle John who received the revelation and Simon Peter, I'm a lot more advanced than they are. I've got this thing down pat, so I don't need all that regular table communion, right? But, but let's be honest. Even though we are filled with the Spirit, the Spirit and the Word call us to regular, constant communion. We're going to talk about this. So we are supposed to learn around the table in table discussions, living out the Word and the faith, and then being sent out into the world. So, you are not alone. That's good news. And we're not supposed to live the Christian life alone. We're supposed to be the church together. And we're supposed to, as the church, equip and be together on a regular basis. So. If you right now are in worship and you're not already engaged in a regular Sunday school group, small group, and or Wednesday night studies, let me encourage you, come with Jesus, come the way of disciples and get engaged. You will grow, okay? This is the way we grow. And again, I'm excited that these Wednesdays Uh, for the next several weeks, we're gonna be looking at a biblically-based study and equipping on real live issues in our current day that dominate this 21st century and that are transforming the 21st century. We'll we'll provide you with resources. Let me just go ahead and introduce three and then actually four books uh, that um, I've read and taken a look at. And, you know, I don't, I'm don't i not expecting you to read all these books, but I will highlight from these books. And if you're interested in resources, you certainly can look to these. First of all would be Rebecca McLaughlin's excellent The Secular Creed and really navigating how to speak with post-Christian neighbors. I mean, Rebecca, that she's an apologist. This is kind of her thing, and she's very good with this, The Secular Creed. Carl Truman's Strange New World. Now, I highlighted, highlighted for you, I think about a year ago, Carl Truman's book, uh, The Rise and Triumph of the Autonomous Self. I mean, it's an academic book about what I'm talking about with secular you know, worldview, right? Very academic, he's written what he would refer to as his popular, you know, count down to the lay people type of book. And it's out now with some new application called Strange New World. Then there's also, and this one's really, this one's really good and very basic. She's an excellent communicator, former, you know, Christian music star, who's now an apologist uh, named Natasha Crane. And her book is Faithfully Different. This is what we want to be, faithfully different. And let me just give you some more on the secular worldview, because I believe Natasha Crane breaks this down pretty basically and simply so we can all understand it. So there are, according to Natasha Crane, secularism's four tenets or four essentials. So I want you to follow me with this and you'll see that this permeates most of the folks we deal with this even tugs on us because this is the worldview, right? That's dominating right now. Number one, feelings, your feelings are the ultimate guide. If it feels good to you, it may feel good to you, pursue it. Feelings are the ultimate guide. Obviously not the Bible, not God, feelings, your feelings. Number two, happiness. Definitely not somebody's glory, like God's glory. Your happiness is the ultimate guide. Number three, there are sins. There is a morality in secularism, okay? Number three, judging. Judging someone else is the ultimate sin. And then number four, God is the ultimate guess. See, a secular worldview, which again, like apparently a majority of Christians now are secular worldview folks, it's okay if you believe in God or if I believe in God, because that's my truth and it works for me to believe in God. It makes me happy and makes me feel good to believe in God, but don't try to voice that on somebody else. Because that would be uh, presuming that there's a greater truth outside of my own experience, right? So uh, God is the ultimate guest. And if you feel good about playing the ultimate guest, that's cool for you. Just don't try to force it on anybody else or try to convert anybody else, okay? That's the secular worldview. Uh, Again, an an excellent book and an excellent author. uh, Pretty rich theologically, but pretty easy to understand uh, as far as the basic structure is Trevin Wax's Rethink Yourself. This is a book I'm reading right now. The Power of Looking Up Before Looking In. In other words, we have a basic choice for finding out who I am and how I'm going to live. I can either look within myself first, that's secularism, or I can look up to God to find out who I am and what my purpose is. And so this book, of course, is telling us, look, rethink yourself, look up before you look in. And as he says, as Trevin Wax says, as Trevin says, it takes guts to put yourself out on the table before God and before other believers if you're a Christian, right? But but this is the way God is gonna grow you. Um, It takes guts to speak out publicly, right? Okay you discover your purpose by looking up to God. And this is a surprise for many people. The Bible is not after your joy. The Bible is not averse to it. The Bible is, in fact, after your joy. The Bible will lead you to what real joy is. So now back to our key scriptures for today from Acts. And just give me a moment to give you the overview of Acts chapters 1 and 2, some of the most important chapters in all the Bible. What you see here is that Acts has essentials for Christian theology and Christian faith pretty much lined out in the first couple chapters. Um, here are the essentials. You know, in the EPC, and the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, we have essentials. Well, these actually kind of match out with those essentials. First of all, you have God, the Savior, And specifically, a Trinitarian affirmation of God as the Savior. And this Trinitarian affirmation leads to the Great Commission. So with the EPC, we have God and the Trinitarian God at the beginning and the Great Commission flowing at the end of the essentials. Acts chapter 1 in the early verses goes ahead and gets you both the framing, okay? So listen to this. Being assembled with them, Jesus is assembled with them. Some translations say they're actually eating together. He commanded them in this table and word union, not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. What's the promise of the Father? The coming of the Holy Spirit, which he said, you have heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, you hear that? Father, Jesus, the Son, and the promised Holy Spirit. Okay, now keep going with this. When they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. Here's the great commission in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So part one of Acts chapters one and two gives us the affirmation of God and his sovereign grace as our Savior, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and the call to the Great Commission. And Great Commission, always pair Acts chapter 1, right, with Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. And go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and that's it. We get them saved and baptized, and that's it. No, no, no. Making disciples, teaching them to obey Everything I have commanded you. Wow, that's going to take a lot of communion together and and learning together, right? Teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and I will be with you always to the end of the age. Uh, Secondly, in the Pentecost sermon that's recorded in Acts chapter 2, we get kind of the heart of the gospel here at the heart of Peter's sermon at Pentecost when the, the Holy Spirit is poured out. Peter's talking about how Jesus is the promised Messiah, who died for our sins as the scriptures prophesied and was raised because God vindicated him on the third day as had been prophesied. And in response, this Jewish audience that's gathered from all over the world for the the Jewish festival of Shavuot or Pentecost, they say, what must we do? And Peter says this, so flowing from the cross the crucifixion of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, what are we supposed to do? Here's what he says. Repent, be baptized for the forgiveness of sin and receive the Holy Spirit. Repent, turn to God, turn away from your sin, be baptized for the forgiveness of sin and receive the Holy Spirit. That's the close of the Pentecost sermon. So you have first and second. In other words, God the Savior going all the way through the Great Commission, The gospel of Jesus, the crucified and risen Lord, and the call to response to the gospel. And then that brings us to third. What are we supposed to do on this side of the cross and resurrection of Jesus? On this side of our baptism, how do we live now as Christians? Well, this brings us again to Acts 2.42. The essentials for Christian life and the church. And here's the essentials. Continual feast in word and table communion. Now, what happens with Acts 2, 42, when you read through the next several verses, verse 43 through 47, you get the effects, you follow me? The essentials lead to the effects, which is all filled signs and wonders, unity in the faith, God's provision, favor and growth and salvation. You know, more and more people are being saved. Holy Spirit pouring out signs and wonders. It's awesome that flows from verse 42 and the essentials. On this side of our spirit-empowered salvation, the essential word and table union. So the disciples were equipped and sent out and changed the world, really. So let's look to the Acts 2:42 essentials. Acts 2, verse 42. And they were continually devoted to. I'm not going to break the Greek down here for you, but I can just tell you, I've I've emphasized the ESV just says they were devoted to, but it's a stronger word than that. That's why the King James says they they continued steadfastly in doing this. Okay, so in other words, do you see what I'm saying? What the scripture is saying here is that these folks are not just, well, I'll show up once a month for a worship service and sing a song. (laughs) That is not what's going on. They are steadfastly on a regular basis, week by week, in many cases, day by day and definitely several times in the week, they are coming together for word and table equipping. Okay, that's, so they, um, they continually were devoted to, as J.B. Phillips translates this, they continued steadily in, okay, four things. Okay, four things, right? Number one, the apostles' teaching. Now, I am going to give you the Greek here for this because I want you to know this word. Didache, okay? The teaching, the apostles' teaching. What is the oldest Orthodox Christian or like actual Christian document beyond the New Testament books that we have extant? That's a, it's a, a, a document that's actually called the Didache because it's the apostolic teaching of the early church, right? It, it's, it's, it's from really early in the Christian church, the Didache. What is this? This is the apostles' teaching focuses on all of the, what we would call the Old Testament the Hebrew scriptures, applying it, seeing it fulfilled in Jesus, and then sending us forward to apply the New Covenant life for us together as Christians and as of the church. That's the apostolic teaching. In other words, responding to God's truth in the Old Testament and bringing it through application into the New Testament, centering on Jesus and his fulfillment and giving of the New Covenant, Okay. That's the teaching. That sounds great, but the truth is, a lot of folks and a lot of churches tend to fade away from the didache, from the apostolic teaching. And and you notice that there's an order here. There's gonna be four of these. What's the first one? What's the essential of the essentials? The apostolic teaching from the scriptures. Churches and Christians and people or people who call themselves Christians tend to get kind of, well, it's, it's kind of a headache to study this and you know I don't have time for it and I don't want a lot of this. Andrew Carnegie brilliantly responded to this um, heading into the early 20th century, Reed reminded me about Andrew Carnegie on Friday. I said, yeah, this is exactly in conflict with him. Andrew Carnegie was a Scot Presbyterian and became the, basically the richest man in the world. Um, he totally rejected his Scott Presbyterian background initially, but then reconciled himself to it in kind of a modernist version of it. He, he, he definitely didn't believe in a personal Jesus or personal savior Jesus But Carnegie did come to believe that there was some kind of energy outside of himself that must be God, and he was very successful. So he ended up joining the Brick Church, which is a very sophisticated, uh, progressive church in New York. You know, kind of uh, Fosdick was the preacher there, social gospel. And uh, Carnegie liked all that, so he decided the problem with the Christian church in the modern world is that we've still got a lot of these Bible thumpers that are wanting to preach and teach the Bible all the time and these old biblical values that are out of date. And they're really obnoxious because they're trying to convert people to Jesus and they're very evangelistic. So we've just got to get rid of that. So what what Carnegie actually did, this is an amazing thing, very beneficent guy. You remember he built Carnegie Hall in New York, like the premier like music you know, um, sanctuary, so to speak of the world. Carnegie donated, gave, I mean, this is, you say this would cost a fortune. Yeah, he gave a lot of his fortune for this. over 7,500 major pipe organs to churches all throughout the United States pipe organs, because what he wanted was he wanted the churches and the people who came to the churches to understand that the center of why they came to church was not about the Bible or Jesus or evangelism, but about like kind of the bells and whistles and the, you know, the music and, and all those kind of things. Music is awesome if it's supporting, right, the Didache, but what Carnegie wanted to do, he wanted to put the pipe organ like at the center of the 20th century church. This is why we come to church, not the cross the organ. So he pretty successfully did that with most of the mainline churches that received his gifts. Can you imagine that 7,000, about 600 and some odd major pipe organs in, in the first part of the 20th century to transform the Christian church? Okay, so the apostolic teaching, number one. Number two, the fellowship. And this is a word that I talked about last week, koinonia, communion. When Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16, says we take the communion, he says, um, when we take the cup, is it not a communion, a koinonia, participation with the blood of Christ? And when we break the bread, is that not a communion, a koinonia with the body? What he's saying is, when we are born anew in the spirit, we're made one with Jesus and with each other. And this is the same term that's being used here by Luke. It's the only time Luke uses it in this context like this, the fellowship, the koinonia, okay? Being together and being one with Jesus and one with each other, which leads into obviously you start thinking about what we call sometimes communion, right? The Lord's supper. Number three, the breaking of the bread. Now this term can be translated either just having meals together or literally having the Lord's Supper together, and I read it both ways. I can tell you this, Luke uses it elsewhere. When Jesus is on the road to Emmaus, um, he intersects with these two disciples who are downhearted after his crucifixion on the road to Emmaus, and it's when he breaks bread with them. Even after explaining the scriptures to them, it's when he breaks bread with them that their eyes are open and they realize who he is, okay? Same term, Luke, the same writer of Luke is giving us this term here. Uh, When you read about Paul gathering with the church, it's on the first day of the week, Acts 20 verse seven, and they break bread and hear the word together. So they go together, but it also means coming together like on a Wednesday night fellowship dinner and being around the table discussing things together. And then number four, the prayers. A prayer life together. This is what the church is called to be, to say, and notice, it's, it's a definite article here, the prayers. It's not just any old praying. It is actually biblically guided praying flowing from the apostolic teaching and from the communion and from the breaking of bread, the prayers. What's your prayer life like? Husbands, wives, how are you praying together? Is it deep? Is it real? Is it flowing from the apostolic teaching and the communion of the church? I pray it is. If it's not quite there... Let's move in this direction. Those are the four essentials, the apostolic teaching, the fellowship, our communion, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. This is what it means to be the church together. This is who we're called to be as First Presbyterian, and this is who you're called to be if Christ is calling you as his disciple. Let us join together in the union of word and table. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, now and forever. Amen.